Have any of you seen the movie The Hobbit? At least one of you has. Oh no, there were more than one hand. Okay. <laughs> well, the opening scene in that movie, uh, you have this hobbit who's uh, led a very uh, regular life, nothing terribly exciting about his life, Bilbo Baggins, and he's happily going about his life when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Gandalf shows up with a whole bunch of noble uh, dwarves on a, a hugely important quest and adventure and all of this and they just burst into his home and all of a sudden his world is absolutely changed, turned upside down. That's kind of the scene we're looking at today in the life of some shepherds who were just going about their business. Uh, we're talking about faith as we approach the day in which we celebrate the birth of Christ we are reminded that Christ does us no good if we don't put our faith in him. And I think uh, this story we have in Luke 2, verses 8 through 20, uh, helps us remember that point. Let's begin in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. We're kind of picking this up in the middle of the story. We're actually in the second chapter, verse 8. So uh, what has Luke told us before this? Well, there's kind of this stark contrast. First, he starts out with Caesar Augustus. And uh, this is the guy who basically runs the world. And the local regional governor, Quirinius, who is over this whole area of the Roman Empire, from him and down through Quirinius, uh, this edict goes out to the whole Roman Empire. He wants to uh, have a census so that they can properly tax everybody. He wants everybody to go to their hometown and to uh, be registered in the Roman Empire. And this far-reaching powerful edict goes out and it affects people to the furthest flung corners of the Roman Empire and, and Palestine was not quite the furthest flung corner but it was certainly far from Rome uh, and even there his edict affects people and then in contrast to these powerful people we have these kind of heroes of the story this young girl named Mary who's about to get married, and all of a sudden things start happening. An angel shows up, announces that uh, she is uh, going to have a child and that this is going to be the son of the Most High. And uh, we have these very humble folk that are being participants in something glorious. And uh, there's such a contrast between the powerful in Rome and these very humble folk that God is working with. And uh, we've gotten to the point in the story where the child has been born. They've made their way down to Bethlehem. That's uh, where Joseph was from. That was his hometown. So they had to go there to be registered uh, according to the Augustus, uh, his edict. So they're down there when... Jesus is born and because there's no place for them in any of the homes they end up having to stay outside in the stable and they have the child and put him in a manger which is not an ancient crib. A manger is a feeding trough. It's where you fed animals. You put hay there not for babies to sleep on but for sheep and goats and, and cows to eat. Uh, so that's where they place this child. 
And you're wondering, you know, you've seen the angels advertising all this. You know in Luke's story that this is the significant birth of the guy this whole book is going to be about. And there's something cosmically significant in his coming to this world. Who is God going to include in this story next? And we don't go to Jerusalem to the high priest's quarters. We don't go to Rome to the Caesar's home. We don't go to the Senate in Rome. We don't go any of those places. All of a sudden, Luke cuts to the fields. Not Jerusalem, not Rome, not some great metropolis like Alexandria. Somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, and the only people there are some shepherds with a bunch of sheep. And we, we can sense right away with the story of Jesus that God is doing something in ways that go completely contrary to the way we run the world, the way we do important things. If we want to launch the arrival of the most important person in all of human history, and we say, who do we need to tell first? We don't say, let's find some shepherds out in the middle of nowhere and start there. Let's make that the beginning point of making this news known to the world. God's advertising campaign was certainly a little odd, wasn't it? So in that region, there's some shepherds out in the field. So this probably indicates that it's not winter. Uh, The practice at this time was that in the warmer months of the year, maybe from April, March or April to November, something like that, you would have the sheep out in the fields where they could graze freely and the shepherds would keep watch over them and stay with them day and night out on the fields. Uh, When it got colder, though, uh, they would bring them into the towns and the houses would have these little fenced-in areas and they would keep them there so that they're safe and warm uh, against the cold and they'd have to feed them. Uh, hay and things like that through the winter months. So if they're out in the fields at night, then probably it's not winter, which means that even though we celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th, that is almost certainly not the day he was born. Uh, And it's important to know the distinction. The church has never claimed that that's when he was born. That's just the day we celebrate his birth because we don't know when he was born. Um, But uh, they're out there and they're uh, keeping watch. Actually, uh, In the Greek, it's they are keeping watches over their flock by night because they would divide the night into certain watches. So you'd get watch one and the other shepherd would get watch two and the other, you know, so they would kind of uh, swap, swap out throughout the night and somebody would be on watch throughout the whole night taking care of the flock. Verse nine, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them And they were filled with great fear. You know, in the Greek here, that phrase, glory of the Lord, is the same phrase in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we find in Exodus 16.10, where we have this description of God showing his glory to Israel in the cloud. The glory of the Lord. Something that had not been witnessed for centuries. And... God has not done this for that long. And who does he choose to show his glory to in this sense? Some shepherds out in the middle of nowhere. The angel of the Lord appears to them. 
And notice that the glory of the Lord shone around them. So the glory is not something that's coming off of the angel. The angel himself is a recipient of being exposed to this glory of God. God is unveiling his glory uh, in the presence of this angel and the shepherds. And it is shining on them all. They are exposed to the glory of the Lord. And they were filled with great fear. You might have noticed, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but if you have, you might have noticed that this is the consistent reaction of people to coming face to face with God. It happened to Moses at the burning bush. It happened to the whole people of Israel on Mount Sinai when God descended on Mount Sinai and allowed the veil to be parted and for the people to be uh, cognizant of his immense power and glory. And they were so terrified, they said to Moses, please, you go up and talk to God. We're afraid we'll die if we come close to him. It'll happen a few years in the future when Jesus steps onto a boat with Peter and says to him, cast your net. I know you've been fishing all night. You didn't catch a single fish. Cast your net on the other side of the boat. And when he does, it's so full of fish, it's tearing the net. He can't even haul it into the boat. And for Peter at that moment, the veil is parted and he sees that the one that is in that boat with him is not just some guy. And his soul reacts to being in the presence of God, in the glory of God. And he says, he falls before Jesus and says, get away from me. I am a sinful man. That's the only natural human response to the glory of God. Philosophers talk about God a lot. And as long as you've not come face to face with God, it's easy to do this uh, in a very academic way kind of sterile setting and we talk about God like he's an insect on a pen and we debate who, what God can or cannot be or what he can or cannot do or what his nature could possibly be or must not be or cannot be and we even have the audacity to uh, claim that we have a moral high ground and we can evaluate God's goodness and declare God worse than us. People do that all the time. It's really easy to do that when the God you're talking about is merely a construct of your own thought processes. We're not terribly impressed by that. But you know what happens to anybody? The moment you come face to face with God and God parts the veil and lets you be exposed, not to all of his glory, that would burn you up in a second, but to at least a little bit of his glory, there's terror. Because all of the facades disappear, all of the self-deceptions we tell ourselves fade, and all of a sudden we become painfully aware that we are sinful creatures and that we have failed the one who gave us life and that we are not worthy to be in his presence. We don't even deserve to live when we are exposed to the glory of God. Fear is the only natural response for a sinful human being. So that's how they respond. They're filled with great fear. They're terrified. I don't know that we quite grasp what that initial moment was like for them. Some of you know. 
Some of you, God has given the gift of, of having a moment where he's, he's thinned the veil enough that you perceive some of his glory. And you know, you know what it is to be utterly aware of how short you come and how great and glorious God is. They were filled with great fear. I have a question for you from these verses. When God appeared to the shepherds and shone his glory upon them, they were afraid. A consistent reaction in Scripture to God's glory. Why do you think God's glory frightens us? Let's keep reading verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is another consistent thing we find in the Bible. People uh, come face to face with God or even just somebody close to God, an angel. And they're terrified. And oftentimes the first thing God says is, don't be afraid. Fear not. You see, the reason God lets us perceive his glory isn't so that we become fully aware that we're worms so that he can grind us into the dirt. That's not what he's trying to accomplish. He wants us to know who he is because he's interested in us being participants together in something. And you cannot have a relationship with somebody you don't know. God has to expose us to who he is before we can have any kind of a meaningful connection with him. And yes, that inevitably for us breeds terror and paradoxically a longing because our souls were made by him and for him. We long to be near. We know we are not worthy. So God says, fear not. I didn't show up here just to scare you. I bring you good news. You know, in the Greek, that's the verbal form of the word gospel. I gospel you. I good news you. Great joy. I bring a message, a good message. God is not here to make your life miserable. God is not here to condemn you. You know what? Jesus did not come to condemn the world. We already did that. He came to save the world. We had already done the condemning bit. We took care of that ourselves. Jesus didn't have to show up to do that. He showed up to save us, to bring us a good message that there is hope, there is rescue. And this is a good message whose intent is to result in great joy. God's intent for us is not to make our lives miserable, to make us uh, horribly uh, insecure, and, and to just kind of make us go through life like we're worms. No, he wants to fill our lives with joy, great joy. And notice, this isn't just for a few select people. Here's the amazing nature of what God is doing in the coming of Christ. This is for all people. 
God's disposition toward every single one of us is for good. It's not that God has a few favorites that he really likes and he really hates all the rest. God wants every one of us to become participants in what he's come to give us. There's not a single person he casts out. There's not a single person he excludes. The welcome, the invitation is universal for every single one of us. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel has told them, don't fear. Uh, God has a good message for you that is intended to result in great joy. But notice he hasn't yet told them what the actual message is. What's this great news that's supposed to result in great joy? Now he tells them, you have received a Savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord and in that short little sentence lies 1500 years of scripture and promises of God saying to his people Israel through 1500 years of written revelation I am bringing a king of kings and lord of lords who will establish the the perfect kingdom of God who will crush the head of the serpent Satan himself and who will bring freedom from sin and death to the human race and rescue all of creation and bring an end to war and enmity and bring peace to the world. The great news is that that day has arrived. The Messiah is born. And the angel gives them instructions on how to find him. Here's how you're going to find him. You're going to look around until you find a baby wrapped up in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. You may think that a manger is a rustic crib. It's not. We tend to use manger so selectively in our society that I think some people grow up thinking that a manger is just kind of a a really rustic crib that you kind of put babies in when you want it to look really chic. Um, And that's not at all what we're talking about. A manger is a feeding trough. It's where you dump cow feed or sheep feed, or donkey feed. That's where they're going to find him. I have a question from these verses. God did not simply want to terrify the shepherds. He wanted to honor them, invite them to witness the birth of our Savior and Lord. How does God honor you by inviting you to see and worship Jesus? Let's keep reading verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm reminded of another moment where uh, somebody wasn't aware that God has this host of angelic Armies. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God is described as the Lord of hosts. That word hosts could also be translated armies. 
It's a military term. Uh, God is the, the God of armies. And uh, there's this story in the Old Testament where Elisha, the prophet, uh, is con- has been informing the king of Israel of the plans of their enemies, the Syrians. So every time they try to attack, they know ahead of time what's going on and it fails. And finally, the king in Syria says, what's going on? And they say, well, it isn't that we have a mole. It's that uh, there's this prophet in Israel and, and God tells them everything we're trying to do. So the king of Syria sends his whole army down to arrest this prophet Elisha. And they're, they're there camped around the prophet. And the prophet's there with his servant, and the servant is absolutely terrified. He's like, what's wrong with you, Elisha? Why aren't you scared? And Elisha says, God, let him see what's really going on. And God opens the servant's eyes, and he becomes aware that there's this army around them, but around that army, there's a host of heavenly beings. The the army of God surrounds them. And, of course, Elisha was never arrested. In fact, he captured that whole army, took it to the king of Israel, and uh, delivered the army to the Israelite king. Because God has his armies at work. This, this is what the shepherds witnessed. First, it's just the one angel, so they actually hear what he's saying. And then the veil parts further, and they become aware of all this other stuff that's going on. And what are these armies of heaven saying? They're praising God. Glory to God in the highest. They're saying that God is worthy of glory and praise and honor in the highest possible sphere, on the highest level, to the highest degree that he could possibly be honored or worshipped. That is the way we need to worship God. You're not doing God some great favor by worshiping him. He already has that glory. You are simply as a creature giving your dues to the one who gave you life when you give him glory. And he alone deserves the utmost highest glory you have to give. Even if he does nothing else for you than give you life, he deserves that. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Christ has come to bring peace. 2,000 years after the establishment of his kingdom, I think it is undeniable that the world is a much better place than it was 2,000 years ago. I believe through these past 2,000 years of history, the people of God have had a significant impact on this world. And that peace has grown and flourished in ways that it hasn't before Christ came. I'm not saying that he has yet eradicated the problem of war. Obviously, that's still around. But let me ask you, would you rather live where you live right now? Or let's go to 2000 B.C., somewhere in Mesopotamia. Would you like to live there? If you had a choice, where would you rather be? I'd much rather be where I am right now because the world is a much better place than it was. We can thank Christ for that. And in this process, we see where he's taking this. We're obviously very far from perfect peace But as Christ brings peace to human hearts, peace becomes a reality here on earth. 
Let's keep reading. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So all this happens. And then, just as quickly as it happens, they're gone. The angels went away from them into heaven, and all of a sudden it's just the regular old hills and the regular old sheep and the regular old sky. It's everything the way it was before. But it isn't. That's what happens when we have these encounters with God. Even after the moment passes and the glory kind of fades and things return to normal, the imprint of our encounter with God remains. They don't just go back to shepherding sheep. They say, we got to go see this. The angel told us what's happening. we got to go find this baby. And they quickly run and find Mary and Joseph. And I'll bet it didn't take them long at all. Think about it. Bethlehem was a small town. They didn't have to go inside any houses looking. They just had to go to the stables and look at the mangers until they found a manger with a baby in it. It couldn't have taken them long. They find him just the way they've been told. And I don't know if they make commotion because all of a sudden we, we were told that they were making it known, uh, they're making known what they've been told about the child. They're conveying the story of what's just happened to them and we're told all who heard it wondered. So maybe they, they caused a bit of a, a commotion and maybe they woke up some people and maybe there was a little bit of an audience there for them. Everyone who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. You might be kind of like those people. You might have heard people talk about having an encounter with God that just absolutely changed everything and think, Wow, that's amazing. And notice Mary. She's, she's had her own stuff, but this whole thing about the angels was news to her. She wasn't out in the fields. She didn't see any of that, but she hears all of this. And she, we're told that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I get the feeling that Mary was was an introspective type of woman that she really liked to kind of sit and think through the things that were happening. And again, that little detail, there's nobody but Mary that would have known that. So I do think Mary is Luke's source for these stories. I think Mary told Luke all these things, and that's why we have them in his gospel. This is her eyewitness testimony to the events surrounding Jesus' birth. So... Uh, Mary's going to have 
a difficult journey ahead. Before long in Luke, there's another guy that's going to show up, Simeon, and he's going to tell Mary, man, God's going to do amazing things through your boy, but one day a sword's going to pierce your own soul. There will come a day, 30-some-odd years in the future, when she will have to see her son hanging on a cross. And it's interesting, I wonder through the years for Mary what this was like, because for 30 years Jesus apparently didn't do anything. For 30 years, he apparently went about life just like anybody else would go about life, a part that he never sinned, uh, and that was certainly, I'm sure, something she noticed. But he didn't seem to be mobilizing people. He didn't seem to be creating the kinds of connections everyone was expecting the Messiah to make. He had to actually set up a kingdom that would span the earth and all the kingdoms of the world would surrender to him. So he didn't seem to be doing any of that stuff. And when he did finally start doing his public ministry, instead of taking on Rome, the big evil empire that was oppressing them, he took it out on the religious leaders in Judea and Galilee. And he exposed the Pharisees for fraudulent teachers of Scripture. And he exposed the Sadducees for lovers of money rather than God. To the point that she and his other siblings were embarrassed. And they tried to find Jesus and say, just come home, stop making such a ruckus. It wasn't until after his resurrection that she came to understand the fullness of what he was about. And she's a great example of somebody who's living this life where God does these amazing things and then... uh, things kind of go back to normal and you go about life and sometimes there are long periods where nothing significant seems to be going on but God is still doing all these things. I love how the story concludes here with the shepherds returning, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They went back apparently to the same thing they had before. But it wasn't the same. They knew God was fulfilling what he'd been promising for millennia. And they had witnessed it themselves. They had been counted worthy of coming to worship the child. God didn't tell any of the Sadducees, any of the Pharisees, any of the bigwigs in Jerusalem. He didn't tell anybody in Rome. He didn't even tell the most important people in the town of Bethlehem. He found shepherds and told them. And it could not be more clear that God is interested in absolutely every one of us. There's nobody too insignificant, nobody that is so uh, insignificant as to escape God's notice. You may think I'm nobody. Why would God have any interest in me? Well, you're no lower than these shepherds were. You know, in later rabbinic tradition, they despised shepherds so much that later rabbis even said, you could not admit the testimony of a shepherd in court. I don't think they quite 
viewed them so negatively in the first century, but clearly in the world the Romans had created where wheeling and dealing and uh, selling and buying and doing merchandise and military power and political power, those were the power brokers of the world, not shepherds. But even for shepherds, there is this good news of great joy. Even for shepherds, there is a Savior born. A Christ, a Lord. So yeah, they go back where they came from. But it's not the same shepherds that had started that evening. Because of their encounter with God, everything changed. Have a final question. God invaded the shepherds' lives that night with glory. They returned to the fields, but changed by the encounter. How have you experienced encounters with God that have changed your life? We can go through life like these shepherds, just going about our daily work, minding our own business, not terribly concerned with God. But when God shows up unexpectedly, when he uh, parts the veil and lets us perceive something of who he is, there's this whole world of things going on we didn't even know. When he not only does that, but indicates to us that rather than try to terrify us, what he's trying to do is invite us to join what he's up to. We have a choice to make. We can say, no, thanks, I'm not interested. I'll just go on with life as usual. A lot of people do that. Or we can do what the shepherds did. We can say, you know what? (laughs) This sounds amazing. I want in on this. Let me go find this and let me tell everybody I can tell them about this. I mean, this is amazing. I want to be a part of it. When God invites us, if we respond in faith, we become participants in this wonderful plan. That's why Jesus came. That's why the Messiah is here. That's why his kingdom is at work in the world and all around us. And God is inviting us to come in faith to Jesus and become participants with him in the work he is doing of rescue. The Savior has come. The process of redemption has been initiated and we are invited to be participants in it with him. I guess my question to you this Christmas season is, are you going to put your faith in Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to us. And God, we know that you are holy and righteous. You are powerful and glorious. You are so far beyond us. And though we are unworthy to even come before you, we are astounded that you come to us and invite us in. Jesus, thank you for coming to us. 
Thank you for extending your kingdom to include even people like us. And Jesus, we want to put our faith, our trust, unreservedly in you. Take our lives and do your glorious work of peace in our lives. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.